I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're beginning the second half of this letter of Paul to the saints who are at Ephesus. Chapters 1 through 3 provides us with the theological foundation, what God wants us to know. First three chapters of the book. And then in chapters 4 through to the end of chapter 6, it becomes a whole lot more practical. He presents what we need to do with what we now know. What do we know? Well, we know that God has blessed us with, how does chapter 1 verse 3 put it? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's a pretty good start. We also know, according to chapter 2, that God is responsible for initiating a couple of life-altering, supernatural transformations. The first is on a personal level, and the second involves a corporate transformation. As individuals, you'll notice in verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And verse 4 begins with, but God. It's his initiative. And as a result of his intervention, verse 10 informs us, for we are his workmanship, or his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Involves a supernatural, God-initiated transformation. And then on the corporate level, there was an insurmountable ethnic and cultural divide between Jew and Gentile. Verse 13. But now, in Christ. And again, the result of God's intervention, supernatural intervention, is reported in verses 14 and 15. He makes both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. A peace that in Paul's day would have been absolutely unimaginable. Jew and Gentile, together in one body. Unbelievable. Then in chapter 3, the the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, provides a further explanation about this mystery of Christ. Meaning, this new community consisting of both Jew and Gentile joined together as one. Namely, the church. Speaking of the church. And now in chapter 4, notice how it begins. Chapter 4. Therefore. So based on all that we now know, what we've learned in the first three chapters about 
new life in Christ, it is now time to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Therefore, please stand with me if you're able for the reading from God's word this morning. We want to focus on the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4, so allow me to read them to us. Verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been, which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord to you this morning. You may be seated. Father, in the words of the psalmist, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. May that become our testimony. Enable us not only to be hearers, Thank you for providing this written revelation of things that you want us to know. Things about your person, your plans, your purposes, your perspective on life in a broken world, and your invitation to live differently in ways that are for our good and for your glory. Teach us, we pray. Help us not to be hearers only, but doers. Especially as we move into the second half of the book of Ephesians. Would you prepare us and enable us to do the hard work of working out our salvation as you work in us? Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Living up to your calling together, you and I, as God's masterpieces, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, are called to fulfill the good works God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them, both collectively and individually. In the context of a community or local assembly of believers. Jesus made it crystal clear in Matthew chapter 16. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, meaning death. Not your death, not anyone's death, not even my death. 
will not overpower it. Jesus is going to build his church. Unstoppable. There are all kinds of debate on who Jesus was referring to or what he was referring to when it comes to that phrase, upon this rock. But when it comes to the promise that he would build his church, his ecclesia, his community of called out ones, that's what that word, Greek word, ecclesia means. Kaleo means to call out, call, and ek means to call out. Ecclesia, his community of called out ones. When it comes to that, there is no debate. When you acknowledge your sin, repent of your sin, ask God to forgive your sin, and begin trusting Jesus Christ alone as your personal Savior, you are immediately ushered in to his community. You are called out of the world and into his ecclesia, a community of believers called the church, of which the Rock Community Church is a localized expression. Right here at 1140 Nellis Street in Woodstock, Ontario. The church was never intended to be an addendum to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. An add-on, an extra. Beloved, participation in the church, being fully engaged in a local assembly of believers, was never intended to be optional for the Christian life. Knowing what you now know as a result of chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians, I think it's significant that the Apostle Paul his first implication or application focuses on living up to your calling together. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. It's interesting that Paul refers to himself again as a prisoner of the Lord. I wonder why. Perhaps he was reminding him, reminding them, his recipients of this letter, of his circumstances in comparison to their freedom. He goes on and he's imploring them to use their freedom to make the right choice. Living up to your calling, make the right choice. This is a choice that only you can make. The New American Standard Bible uses the word implore. The NIV uses urge. The New Living Translation uses the word beg. Paul is not giving an order here. This is not an imperative or command. Rather, he's making an appeal. The appeal of a POW, prisoner of war. And Paul had done nothing wrong. He'd been arrested and held captive in Caesarea for two years and then appealed to Rome. He was shipped off to the city of Rome where he has now been under house arrest for approximately three years 
before sitting down to write this letter to the saints at Ephesus. All because he was doing the good works which God prepared beforehand so that he would walk in them. Incarcerated, he is now imploring these saints in Ephesus to make the right choice. Have you ever implored implored someone? I implored Cynthia's parents to let me marry their daughter. I'm sure thankful they did. And I've implored our sons on many occasions to live God-honoring lives. In fact, sometimes I may have crossed that imploring line, but we won't go there. The same Greek word translated implore here is used again in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse, used here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, is found again in chapter 6 and verse 22. Listen to this verse. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort, parakaleo, your heart. Same word. Interesting. That sure takes some of the edge off this imploring that Paul has spoken of in chapter 4, verse 1. This is not a harsh or demanding appeal. We need to hear concern and compassion in Paul's voice. He was making his appeal with their best interest, their very best interest in his heart. That's what motivated him. Actually, the same Greek word is used in Luke chapter 8, verse 41. I read, And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of a synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet. And he began to implore him to come home to his house. I don't think it matters your religious convictions or what leadership position you may occupy when you have a 12 year old daughter that's dying at home and you've heard that this Jesus of Nazareth is healing people you're going to beg him you're going to implore him with a sense of desperation and urgency. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, provides us with another sense of this same word. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Paul was asking God, pleading with God, to remove this thorn in the flesh that he really thought was limiting him from accomplishing all that he wanted to accomplish. But God said no. With this explanation in verse 9. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Paul is not trying to impose his will on these saints who are in Ephesus. It's their choice. It's a choice that only they can make. But I would not want us to dismiss Paul's appeal 
too quickly. He's urgent. He's desperate. It's heartfelt. Brothers and sisters, living up to your calling is a choice that only you can make. The elders can't mandate it. Well, I suppose they could, but that's not going to work. Your fellow participants here at the Rock Community Church, they can demand it. But the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, has made an urgent, desperate, heartfelt appeal. The choice is now yours. Notice verses 2 and 3. Ephesians chapter 4. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's call them relational accelerants. There's five of them. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance, and being diligent. Living or live up to your calling. Add relational accelerants. First, and I might, could I suggest foremost, be humble. I do not think it's an accident that the Apostle Paul begins with this relational accelerant. Having an accurate view of yourself and the contributions that God has prepared in advance for you to make. This is where it all begins. It's humility. In Paul's letter to believers in Rome, the first 11 chapters again are what we need to know. The, he lays a theological foundation, chapters 1 through 11. In chapter 12, he turns to more practical matters like he does in Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 3 of chapter 12 reads, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Measuring yourselves by faith, the, by the faith God has given us. Then we have the, the ultimate example of humility in Philippians chapter 2. Allow me to read it from the New Living Translation beginning at verse 3. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take the interests of others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality of God something to cling on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being, and he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death 
on a cross. The opposite, at the other end of the spectrum, from humility, is of course pride. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2 sounds the warning. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. As we turn to the New Testament, we find James and Peter saying exactly the same thing. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Pride build walls that separate and alienate us from one another. Humility builds bridges that unite us and empower us so that we can be all that God wants us to become. Be humble. The second relational accelerant mentioned here is gentleness. Be gentle. Don't be harsh. The King James Version uses the word meekness. Meekness has been defined as strength under control. I like that. Strength under control. This is not about being wimpy or timid or fearful. Because of their position, their power, their personality, or their popularity. Not being fearful of those kinds of people. Someone wrote, gentleness is similar to kindness, but it involves cultivating a softness of heart toward other people. Gentleness. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, include it in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. These are qualities that the indwelling Spirit of God produces in a believer's life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these could probably be identified as relational accelerants, but the Apostle Paul identifies two here in his list in Ephesians chapter 4. Gentleness and patience. That's the third relational accelerant. Be patient. I know. Patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Seldom found in women, never in a man. The point is, that little rhyme, is that we all struggle, regardless of your gender. I've yet to meet someone who enjoys sitting in a waiting room. We may understand that God is sovereign over all the details of our lives, but my goodness, what's taking this red light so long to turn green? And oftentimes, it is the people that we love the most that present the greatest test when it comes to Exercising gentleness and patience. My studies this past week, I read about a dad who got both of those right. There's a time to speak, but there's a time also to be quiet. That is what my father did. 
Dropping a fly ball may not be a big deal to most people. But if you're 13 years old, have aspirations of the big leagues, it's a big deal. Not only was it my second error of the game, it allowed the winning run to score. I didn't even go back to the dugout. I turned around in the middle of left field and climbed over the fence. I was halfway home when my dad found me. He didn't say a word. Just pulled over to the side of the road, leaned across the seat and opened the passenger door. We didn't speak. We didn't need to. We both knew the world had come to an end. When we got home, I went straight to my room and he went straight to the kitchen. Presently, he appeared in front of me with cookies and milk. Dad never said a word, but he did show up. Gentleness and patience. Sometimes it's enough just to show up. At other times, we may need to speak up, but always with humility, gentleness, and patience. Fourthly, be tolerant. And notice this tolerance is rooted in love. It's not talking about appeasement or making excuses for inappropriate behavior because we fear confrontation. Within the context of a local church, we need to exercise all kinds of grace as we work out our salvation together. In Christ, we are God's masterpiece. No question. Can't be argued. And yet we're still a less than perfect church full of less than perfect people. It would serve us well to remember this reality in all of our interactions and collaborations. At the Elders' Council, we like to say together, we make one really good elder. Maybe that would be helpful for us to do the same as a church family. Together, we make one really good Christian. Be humble, gentle, patient, tolerant. And fifthly, be diligent. The New International Version and the New Living Translation read, make every effort. Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation reads, be alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. Clearly, the sense here is that it's going to take some determined, intentional, focused, and enduring effort by each and every one of us. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And notice it's preserved. It's not seek and find, or create, or manufacture, or produce. It's preserved. And the same Spirit that indwells every believer from the moment of salvation... He's the unifying agent. Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, you'll remember, in him, that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Spirits indwelling each and every one of us. From our previous studies in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 23, has left kind of an indelible mark in my mind. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and make our abode, our home, in him. Is that not amazing? It's not a unity based on common interests or beliefs or even convictions or, or causes. Rather, this co- community that we share together is the result of the Spirit of God indwelling each and every one of us. He's the glue. He's the mortar between the bricks. Our job is to preserve what God has, is, and will do. Living up to your calling, make the right choice. Add relational accelerants. And finally, live up to your calling. Refuse to make excuses. We need to accept the fact that there are no legitimate excuses here, folks. You see, God has done, is doing, and will do his part. That's what verses 4 through 6 say. Circle the word one in your Bibles in these verses. There is one body... And one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope and your call, of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. It's a sevenfold declaration involving all three persons of the Trinity. You notice that? The spirit the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Father. God is all in on this unity thing. Literally, over all and through all and in all. He's all in. Further, these seven God-ordained commonalities that we all share together form the foundation, the very foundation of our faith, binding us together. One body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. We can run, but we cannot hide from this oneness. This togetherness is an essential element of God's plan for redemption. What eggs are to an omelet Unity is to living up to your calling. 
John Stott, famous British preacher, wrote a book titled The Living Church. And the subtitle of that book were Convictions of a Lifelong Pastor. In the very first chapter, he writes this. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It's not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community for his purpose, conceived in eternity past, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in a future eternity. is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, that is, to call out of the world a people for his own glory that will live up to their calling together. Beloved, let me say it again. I'm not suggesting this is going to be easy. I've listed just a few common relational deterrents, things that we need to be aware of that will sneak up behind us and bite us, things that will destroy our unity. Number one, gossip. Talking about one another instead of talking to one another. Tolerating church bullies. Self-centeredness and personal autonomy. Nobody's going to tell me you can fill in the blank. Lack of prayer. This unity, it's a God thing. You have to be inviting his involvement. An unhealthy, an unhealthy fear of conflict. Wanting to avoid conflict at all cost. Not good. A culture of negativity. Low expectations. No church discipline or accountability. That'll undermine unity. A preoccupation with church growth techniques. Trying to do it ourselves. Inward focused. Lose sight of a lost and dying world. And then lack of confidence in the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace will never be easy. My goodness, of all the things Jesus could have prayed for, this last night on the planet, he prayed that we would be one. Whether it be in our marriages, our homes, our churches, our community, or in our world, it's going to be tough. But God has done his part. Now it's up to you and me. Living up to our calling together. Make the right choice. Add 
relational accelerants. Don't make excuses. Refuse to make excuses. I watched them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a busy town. With a heave and a hoe and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and the side wall fell. I asked the foreman, are these skilled men? And the men you'd hire if you had to build? He gave a laugh and said, no indeed, just common labor is all I need. I can wreck in a day or two what builders have taken a year to do. And I thought to myself as I went away, which of these roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder who works with care, measuring life by rule and square? Am I shaping my deeds to a well-made plan, patiently doing the best I can? Or am I a wrecker? who walks the town content with the labor of tearing down. Living up to our calling together, right here in this local assembly of believers called the Rock Community Church. Father, thank you for this church, a community of called out ones. Thank you for each and every participant here this morning. And for those that are unable to be with us because of COVID-19 concerns or other pressing responsibilities, thank you for this reminder that you have given us to each other so that together we can live up to our callings, individually and collectively, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, the good deeds that you prepared in advance so that we could walk in them. May we be found faithful by the power of your spirit, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.